You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 179 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is once again alchemist John H. Reed III. John has over three decades of experience in study and actual practice of alchemy and spagyrics. He has lectured extensively on the subject. He has taught many classes and written books. John appeared on the podcast way back in episode 83, if you want to check that out. So, uh, let's begin. Lord, open our minds that we may perceive thee. Open our sense of hearing that we may listen to the silence of your voice. Open our sense of sight that we may see your singular divinity. Open our sense of smell that we may partake of the perfume of your essence. Open our sense of taste that we may speak and savor the sweetness of truth. Open our sense of touch that we may experience the rapture of one. For where does all wisdom and knowledge flow from but thee, O Lord? With nature as thine equal to show the way. We seek knowledge founded upon wisdom. With kind and pure hearts to use it. Thank you for being on the podcast again after many years. Uh, thank you for having me, and it's uh, a great pleasure to be back. What was it we just heard? Uh, that is what I call the alchemist prayer, and it is meant to help focus one. I mean, the first thing is in the Emerald Tablet, and I'm going to paraphrase here. You know, all comes from one and arises from one through the adaptation of one. And so truly every daily occurrence that you go through um, is an interaction of the divine with your soul. And so you want to be able to perceive that. And once you have opened your mind, uh, the idea is to basically follow the um, the way that the senses evolved. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, the first sense is light. God said, let there be light. But they're missing the point that it says, and God said, let there be light. So sound, then sight, then smell, then taste, and finally feeling. And a recognition that everything flows from the divine, and that nature, uh, contrary to the opinion of many, is actually the equal. Uh, it's not the servant of God, it's the feminine aspect of it, but they're, you know, it, it takes two to tango and make a baby, so. 
<laughs> in the same way, you know, uh, as it happens below, so it happens above. Um, and then, you know, obviously any information, knowledge, power that we receive that is gifted to us, we want to use um, in a kind way. Um, and, you know, whatever pure means to you, um, you know, uh, everybody has their own definition of it. And so I don't try to define it. I just say, you know, kind and pure hearts to use it. So that's what we just heard. So you mentioned the bit about uh, God saying, let there be light. But I think there was some stand-up comedian, I can't recall who it was, who made the remark that God created the heavens and the earth. And then he said, let there be light, which basically means he did it in the dark, <laughs> which is impressive. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if you look at the uh, Kabbalistic tree, you have Ain, Ain Sof, Ain Sof, or, the, you know, basically from nothing, the light and the limitless light. Um, so nothing just means a state of ignorance about that which is. <laughs> You know, our, our human minds can't conceive of anything before what we call a beginning. Um, you know, a thousand years ago there were microwaves, but nobody could conceive them. Doesn't mean they didn't exist. It's just, you know, unless you were some really highfalutin adept, I guess, um, you would have had no inkling that there was such a thing called a microwave uh, in the universe. So that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. And there it is. So. so for those who are not aware of your work, can you tell a bit about yourself and your area of expertise? Well, my name's John H. Reed III. Um, I've been practicing and studying uh, alchemy uh, in all its facets, its uh, practical laboratory and uh, inner spiritual uh, for over 30 years. Um, I've written two books and numerous articles on the subject. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look up Spagyric on Wikipedia, You'll see that my book down at the bottom is recommended reading uh, as a course in practical plant alchemy. Um, you know, alchemy is a dual science. And we kind of touched on this the last time we spoke, but it is absolutely necessary that one become aware of the energy within. Um, psychologists say that, you know, we, we, there's a society of the mind, meaning the voice that I know as, as John, um, and you know, as you is only one voice, the voice that you've actually been to listen to, but there are disparate energies. You could actually say that, you know, there are, I don't know, 40, 50, a hundred million a hundred trillion cells in, in the human body that we look at as, you know, being human. Each one of those is a consciousness. 
with its own needs, its own desires. Some of them group together and, you know, they form different organs, different societies for their mutual benefit of what they do. But there's also a whole microbiome that goes on. And then there are what the ancient alchemists would have called uh, the seven metals or seven interior stars, uh, what today most people know as chakras. Each one of these is a separate voice. And you can no more expect your first and second chakras to uh, get along and agree you know, than you can your eye and your nose to agree on the same thing. I mean, they, they're, they're different realms of experience. And, and you as the central intelligence have to t take in that telemetry and decide what to do, which energy you're going to put it to. There's, there, you know, there's no right, there's, there's no wrong per se in either one of those things. But the first chakra is about safety. That's what it's all about. It's about status quo. It's about m maintaining the pattern, whether it be the species or, you know, behavior. Uh, second chakra is about desire. Um, you know, I, I like the way that woman looks over there. I, I want um, some money. I, I want a family. Um, uh, both of those chakras deal with sex, but in uh, a different way. The second chakra is all desire. It's, it's, it's sex for the fun of having sex, while the first chakra is sex for the maintaining of the species. Uh, two completely different things, although sometimes it, it, you know, you get a baby out of just having fun. Um, but there's no right or wrong. It's what you decide how much safety, how much desire. And everyone has different levels of risk that they're willing to take. Um, and you have to become conversant with that. And, and, and that really is the work of, of inner alchemy. Um, it is to go in and bring light to the shadow. Um, everybody has shadow and it, shadow or, or energy that we're not aware of. Um, as I had said in the uh, first podcast, your system created a, a bulwark around that to protect your pristine innocence. And in trying to fit into the tribe and the, the, the mores, uh, um, the, the, the circumference of what is acceptable within the tribe, um, you know, certain parts of you got put away into, you know, dark corners. And the bad thing about that is that energy always wants to move. So it's going to find a way to express itself. And generally, it expresses itself um, in a way that is not healthy for anyone because it's become contorted. And so our, our idea about the energy is colored by the aberrant way 
it's expressed. But the energy itself is is not bad. It's the perception about the energy. It's it's sort of like the um, parable parable about the blind men um, that come a hear about an elephant, you know, um, and they want to find out what it is. And they say, well, you know, we can figure out what this thing is by touching it. And so the first one touches its trunk and says, you know, it's, it's a big, thick snake. It's like a big, thick snake. And another one who touches the ear says, oh, this is, you know, it reminds me of a fan. This, this, this creature is like a fan. touches its leg and says this is it's, it's like a pillar like a tree trunk uh, one touches its side and says you know this creature is a wall it's it's sturdy it's immovable and finally the last one touches or one of them touches the tail and says you know it's like a rope and the last one touches the tusk and says that it's hard and smooth like a spear now all of those things had a kernel of truth to it but the perception about the totality of the elephant was wrong. There's nothing wrong with the elephant. It's, it's standing right there. We're, they, they were just perceiving it wrong. And it's the same about this ener these energies that we call good or bad or light and shadow. So in the inner alchemical work, what you want to do is not try to get rid of the energy. I mean, that is really analogous to saying, I'm going to make myself whole. And in order to do that, I'm going to start lobbing off body parts. You know, oh, my hand offends me. Let me chop it off. I'm whole now. I don't think so. You've, you've just lost a hand. What we want to do is get rid of the erroneous perception about the energy that there is a dual person, as it were. Oh, there's a good John, a bad John. Oh, when I do what are my idiosyncrasies, it's the same fellow who makes medicine that, that helps to cure and heal people. They're, they're one in the same being. And the idea is not to see oneself in a binary uh, as a binary being, but rather as a whole being. And so the alchemical work, say like when you're working with a plant and uh, generally it's said, you know, it has its, its uh, virtue and its, its, its sin, uh, say for uh, the heart, pride and humility. Well, the first thing you want to do is come to an understanding that, you know, a little bit of pride and a little bit of humility are fine, but if you're too humble, people walk all over you. You you get nothing accomplished, and if you're too proud, you don't want to listen to anything that anyone says. And yet, uh, we, we want to bring about a balance to have access to both of those things. And so in the alchemical work, you can see when you're making your tincture or you're doing your extract that you're pulling out and you're examining, well, you know, how am I too prideful? Or am I so cautious and humble and risk averse that I'm letting people use me? Or do I want this thing so badly 
that I'm willing to put myself into a bad situation or a bad scenario in order to get it. So those are the first things that we, we, you know, we want to examine as that extract is forming in the liquid, the menstruum is getting darker and darker. And when we do the calcination of the plant matter after we've fully extracted um, the soul of the plant, um, denoting it by, you know, you see the tincture. Uh, when you when you incinerate and burn the plant matter and then later calcine it, you're not getting rid of a thing. You're not getting rid of the energy. What you're removing are your misconceptions about the energy. So, you know, each one of the guys that are around, uh, uh, around the elephant, you know, you're moving them back and saying, well, you know, look, it's all of those things, guys. And more. And more. And so by removing those false perceptions, false view, false beliefs about a thing in the, in the calcination process, you come up with this white calx that you're able to get this, you know, this pure, beautiful crystalline salt from. And I'll, I'll send you a picture of a, a salt, plant salt. Um, via Skype, you might want to put that on your uh, your site so people can see it. But it's that same energy now, liberated, freed of the dross of misperception, that we can begin to build a new a new perception. And each time you do this, it's it's like this spiral going upwards. You you know. Um, You're examining it deeper and deeper and getting layers and layers uh, of stuff out of the way. And it's, it is very cathartic, especially the calcination process. I have some students now who are in a group doing calcination work. And it is rather cathartic. And, and it's quite interesting when you make these seven basics that, you know, normally speaking, a person would think, well, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to burn this herb, big deal. Everybody is, you know, burned wood or burned an herb or, you know, cigarette or whatever have you. And it, it turns to ash and it's, you know, a light gray to white ash. No big deal. But in doing this work, because as I have said before, your outside experience is a reflection of what's going on inside of you. It's, it's meant to be a, a means of being able to see your inner conflict or inner state would be better. And so some herbs that are associated with certain planets and certain energies are going to easily calcine. But, and, and you know, different people say one guy will be able to easily calcine um, their Monday plant, which is, you know, the moon, uh, Yasad. Um, but another guy won't be able to, it, you know, it's, it's, you're working with the same herb, but it's not responding and it's, it can become <laughs> rather frustrating. Uh, and I had even spoken about this before and I believe the last, uh, uh, last podcast when I was talking about what had happened with some rosemary and it's not until you actually go and you look 
at this thing and you seek to understand what is going on, at least gain some apprehension of the energy. Um, you know, that that's when you, you start moving into reconciling, when you want to understand, not not change, you know, not alter, but understand. Um, because truly, everything made by divinity is good. And so at the heart, this is why an alchemist can make medicine out of anything. Um, you know, again, I'm not... I'm not um, a Christian, but I was raised in a Christian house, and so that's the mythology that I use. Um, and so, you know, when it says, and God saw it was good, or said it was good, or however that phrase goes, um, there is medicine, there is truth, um, there is goodness at the heart of everything. And so even antimony, a very deadly rank poison, by the way, um, you, you, you mess with that and you don't know what you're doing. You're going to kill yourself real quick. It's, it's real easy. You don't know how to purify it, get rid of its salts and do the dexterous distillation that Basil Valentine talks about. Um, you run a good risk of killing yourself and anyone else that ingests it, or at least, um, having very painful, um, bowel eliminations, uh, projectile <laughs> bowel eliminations. It, it, it'll give you the cramps. At, at, at best, if it's not prepared, um, it'll give you the trots and it'll be painful and cramping. And at worst, it will kill you. But if you know what you're doing, uh, you can prepare something that is an excellent blood purifier um, and that has been used by um, alchemists in the past to cure all sorts of diseases. Um, but back to the inner thing real quick. The reason for making those things is so that you bring about an inner initiation. This is a very organic process. It's not something that, you know, some guy is sitting there and waving a magic wand and making things happen. It is a very organic process, or at least that's the way it's, it's, it's happened to me and, and everyone else that I know. And that in making these things, true, you, you do need an initiator, a person who has um, in, in a line of transmission, as it were. But the work is done by the individual, and the initiator or guide is just there to make sure that you stay on the path, you're not straying, and, you know, that you're doing it in the time allotted. Because a lot of times when you start this kind of work, it, it's like stirring the pot, man. Um, you know, you, you look at a river and it's the water's clear, but, you know, of course, it's got a muddy bottom. You put a stick in there and you start stirring it up all of a sudden the silt rises and you, you can't see anything in there and that's what it's like starting an alchemical work and a lot of times things happen um, you know all of a sudden people's job schedules change their family starts saying oh I need your time for this or that or you know all kinds of things to dissuade you 
from continuing with the work. But if one sticks with it and shows fidelity, um, the reward is an astral nocturnal erudition. You actually start to have dreams. And the dreams are laid out in a very precise manner. And it's like climbing the tree of life. And the dreams are so vivid um, that you would think you had taken LSD or something like that. But the fact is you haven't. I mean, rosemary is not a psychoactive drug. Neither is hyssop. You know, um, and yet, in making these products and doing these things, if you're diligent to the timing, if you're diligent to the work and you stay with it, it causes something to happen internally. And then all of a sudden, forces that had been slumbering wake up and start talking to you. So that's your first inkling. A lot of times that there, hey, there really is this interior life. There's these intelligences, energies that want to communicate with you. And then you need to follow a particular paradigm um, so that of, of meditation and inner experience and, and so that you interact with these and, and, and get an information. So uh, is that why the archetype of the alchemist is a hermit? Because there's less distractions? In a very real sense, yes. Um, but, you know, in today's world, in the West, um, it's, 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 it's no good to just go to the mountaintop and live on the mountaintop and say, I have reached enlightenment. Your work is in the valley, so in a very real sense, you're doing things that are different than than the normal person. The normal person actually thinks, okay, my will is supreme. Uh, my daily thinking consciousness is supreme, and, and, and that's what is called the Ruach. And, you know, it thinks it has some type of control. There, there, there are basically four um, motivations that um, move every human being. Um, safety, approval, separation, and control. Uh, safety is fire element. You know, you think back to when we were on the Serengeti as a species, and you're sitting there huddled in the dark, and, you know, maybe you have some sticks or whatever, and you know, you're, you're jabbing at the shadows because you, you, you can't see anything. You just hear. And maybe you see eyes reflecting the moonlight. <clears throat> but when we got control of fire, that literally was the first magic circle. It pushed the darkness back. Uh, approval, water element. Well, we, we do have to live by the construct of the tribe. And if the tribe doesn't approve of what you're doing, it'll throw you out if you're a normal, you know, just regular tribe member. Now, if you're, you're the uh, shaman or the spiritual one of the tribe, 
you live with the tribe, but apart from the tribe. You know, there's usually a cave or something up there where, where the uh, spiritual guy lives. He's part of the tribe, and um, but yet apart from it. Then there's the air element, separation. You know, air, gas, molecules are far apart. And, and separation is actually uh, us seeking to express our individuality. I mean, yeah, we have to work it within um, the approval or constructs of the tribe. But, you know, it's everybody tries to give it their unique flair, whether it be dancing or drawing or music or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing in the tribe. And then there's Earth, which is control. And the Ruach thinks that it has control. It says, well, I can see what the seasons are, so I know, and hey, I've gotten smart enough that I can control electricity, so I can have seasons inside. And, you know, that's what the normal human being goes by. The adept, or the alchemical apprentice, seeks to give their will totally over to the higher genus or God, or, you know, again, whatever appellation you want to slap onto it, and and follow it. And so in, in certain instances, it, it seems very counterintuitive to do what the adept does. But it that person is realized, not through faith, although it started out as faith, you know, you, you, you read the stuff, and your guide says, hey, you know, this is what you need to start uh, working on. Um, through experience, you get to know that the universe is beneficent and it's not there to harm you. And in fact, the more control you give up, the more control you actually have because you start riding the wave um, and you're, everything that you need, it's, it's just taken care of. Um, and so... A lot of people, when they start magic, they're like, oh, you know, I want to change this. I want to make that happen. This is all Ruachian, uh, Ruach-based thought. And the adept seeks to use his mind or his ego as it was meant to be, which is a tool. Um, again, I said the last time I believe that um, spirituality is the adroitness with which one allows the life force to flow through them to accomplish whatever task that they happen to be in. And so the adept wants to remove resistance to what is, and what is is the will of the one. And you begin to hear that will. It speaks to you. Um, because most of us create a reality. And, and, and this is what a lot of people don't realize. You, you create, again, your reality by the habitual mental habitation that you have. And so if you're always thinking about um, conflict and you know, struggle and 
you know, you're going to experience an inordinate amount of uh, traffic delays or long lines whenever you go to the store or whatever it is like that, that is seeming like an impeding influence. And your, your conscious mind actually inseminates what the ancients called your subconscious mind or your unconscious mind. 99% of what happens in our world happens on a level that is below our conscious awareness. You know, I'm not aware of how my digestion works, that my heart is beating, that I'm, you know, breathing, that the molecules in my desk or in the walls of my house are spinning in a certain way. All of that is controlled by an energy or consciousness that is below our, our conscious awareness. But it is deductive in its reasoning. And so whatever the conscious mind inseminates into it with its expectations and judgments about its daily experience, that's what it's going to seek to reproduce because it says, okay, that's what he wants. And, and that's what happens with, with the everyday man and he's trying to seek control and stuff. And, and the adept or the alchemical apprentice is moving away from that. So that is that, that hermit aspect. But the work is in the valley. My, my mentor told me an interesting story about some monastery, I don't know, uh, in China or India or some place, where the monks were taught to meditate. And after a while, they were sat under one of those big, huge bells. And they had to learn to maintain composure and meditation while the bell was being rung. So apart from the world, but yet in the valley, being impinged upon daily life. It reminds me of this quote I recently saw from the teacher Ramdas, he said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because my ex-wife knows how to push my buttons, man. <laughs> it's, you know, you, you sit there and think, oh, I, I've, I've, I've arrived <laughs> wherever arriving takes you to. And then... um your ex-wife makes you humble and your daughters make you humble. And it's it's like, okay, <laughs> there's still work to be done. And that's fine. Everything's in, incremental. And, that, and that, that's, that's the thing about this work. Everybody thinks, oh, there's a destination. There's no destination. It's a process. Um, talking about letting go. And this, this, this what I went through is, 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 is very apropos to this whole thing that I've been saying. My, my mentor had told me, um, you know, suffering comes from not accepting things as they are. And so when I used to go pick up my wife from work, there was this one merge where it was just horrendous. I mean, you know, you're sitting there waiting in line and people are just cutting in and it's, you know, you're gripping the wheels and your knuckles are, are white and that's pretty bad when you're, you know, you've got a high melanin content like I do and your knuckles turn white. And so, the, you know, the, the conscious mind is like, the rock is, I, I don't want these people. I, you know, this is my turn. He has no right. Yada, 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 yada. 
And I started thinking about what my mentor had said. And I said, okay, you know, he was like, just let go. Don't resist, don't fight. And for, I guess, the first two or three months, it was like I didn't think about what he had said until after I had been through the experience. And I was actually on my way home from having picked her up. And, you know, I'm like, oh, damn, you know, I, I shouldn't let go. I shouldn't have fought. But the time horizon between realization of what had gone down and the actual event started getting shorter until finally um, in the event and you know people are cutting me off and I'm trying to control myself and I'm fighting with myself and all of this and and even when you know I said okay fine I've, I've arrived at a state of zen or peace you know people are cutting me off and I'm oh you know just you know five ten I'm trying to you know I'm pulling back but, you know, it's like people are wholesale just going in front of me. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm still fighting this energy until finally there came a time where I wasn't trying to change anything. It just didn't matter. And the strangest thing happened. People stopped cutting in front of me nine times out of ten. No one would cut in front of me. Um, I would slow down so a person could go in front of me. And they'd go, you know, to the car behind. But they just wouldn't do that anymore. And by letting go of control or seeking control, you actually gain that which you seek. It's no different than, you know... Um, when I go to the uh, post office, there's there's a certain path that I go that is usually difficult to merge. Again, um, I started asking myself, well, how do you know that's the reality? Now, the conscious mind is saying, because it was like that yesterday, I expect it to be like that again today. But as soon as I started asking those questions and stopped expecting a certain outcome, the energy now shifted, and most of the time, there's no problem. And even if I go into the post office and it's full, and you see all, you know, you see a bunch of cars in the parking lot, first thing your mind says is, ah, oh, crap, I'm going to have to wait online. How do you know that's true? Mind says, because look at all these cars. Any Anybody with common sense will tell you that you're going to wait online. Yeah, let's find out. Go in the post office. Everybody's filling out stuff. There's one person at the window. As I walk up to wait online, that person walks away, and boom, I'm right there. This is what I mean about the higher forces, the HG, making your way. When you begin to let go. And you're following that voice. And it says, you know, you, you plan on doing a certain thing. And it says, this is the time to go to the post office. So this is the time to leave to do that. Or I want you to, to do a particular thing. You do it. And it's like a hot knife through butter. There's just no resistance. For many people, when they encounter alchemy, eh, regardless of their previous skills, if you 
<clears throat> come across inner alchemy, even if you have no spiritual qualities, uh, it's still fairly comprehen- comprehensible. Uh, but if you come ap- across the outer alchemy, the lab work, it can be quite daunting. So, and especially if you read like source material, like maybe not books written by modern practitioners, but you know, if you want to check out the sources, it's uh, it's almost like a nightmare to. I mean, for a complete beginner. So, how can you approach the laboratory work and and not get you know completely? It's like almost studying to be a nuclear physicist at some level, you know. Uh, yeah, well, that's exactly what it's like, and 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 they do that. <clears throat> uh, the work guards itself. Now, I've been stressing the fact, uh, in, in 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 all the times that we've talked, that you have to prepare the inner. And when you do prepare the inner, and those inner energies wake up, they begin to communicate with you. And things that a normal person who has not gone through this inner transformation read, that is absolutely confusing. Um, you know, all of a sudden it's like somebody opened the windows and let in a bunch of light. You you just begin to understand. And, and don't think that because, you know, people like to say, well, Manfred Junius, who wrote the Practical Handbook of Plant Alchemy, or Frater Albertus, who wrote the Alchemist Handbook, or Jean Dubois, who did the Philosophers of Nature's material. Everyone likes to say, well, these guys wrote openly. No, they didn't. Uh, there are things hidden. And, and when I say hidden, it's hidden in plain sight in all of their writings. As a matter of fact, Dubois says, uh, and I think it's in the first cost of Spagyrics. Um and I'm paraphrasing here. You'll notice that um, in the explanations that we've given of the work, if you tried it, some of the things have not worked. And that's because uh, we want to see who's actually doing the work. And then they write in and say, hey, I tried X, Y, and Z, and it didn't work. And what am I doing wrong? And then he gives um, a, a key that's missing. Um, Albertus, you know, a lot of times this stuff it has to do with symbology. Uh, it reveals itself. That that's a whole another language, a green language. Um, and so those things begin to reveal themselves, but it's only when a person has gone through the interior changes that are necessary. And so you know it. it if you want to play a piano, you know, you have to practice, practice. But the structure of your fingers begin to change. Just like, you know, if you do Muay Thai, you know, and you, those guys that just, you know, kick. Um, you know, they, they toughen up their shins, man, to where, you know, he could kick you with and break your leg with his shin. Now, you know, if two two normal guys, you know, clash their shins together, they're both going to be on the floor writhing and writhing in pain. But you can change the structure of your physical body through diligent work, and it's the same with your interior senses. And everybody has psychic senses. You know, a lot of people think, oh, 
I, I, I have none, but you do. You know, if, if your audience members close their eyes for a moment, I'm going to ask them to do something very important. I want you to really pay attention. Now, is something, and I want you to, I want you to smell an apple. Now, more than likely, a couple of things happened. The first thing is that your mind probably showed you a picture of an apple, whether it's a golden delicious or, you know, a red one or whatever. You saw an apple. The second thing that happened, if you were really paying attention, is that for a brief moment, you actually smelled an apple until your mind chimed in, your conscious thinking mind that wants control, time chimed in and said, but there's no apple there to smell. But we all have psychic senses. If you sit back and you're in a reverie about some holiday meal that your mother or father or whoever cooked, you can smell that thing. God, you can even taste it. Those are your interior senses. There's obviously no cherry pie or whatever it is that mom, dad, or grandma was cooking. You can smell it. You can taste it. Those are your interior psychic senses, and we all have them. It's just that we've been taught to ignore them, been taught to discount them. It's not real. It's imagination after all. After all. But, you know, Einstein said that imagination was crucial to discovery, and Paracelsus said something along the lines that active imagination, true imagination, is essential doing the alchemical work so basically you're saying if you really want to get into alchemy you start with the inner and then you continue with the outer and then continue with the inner as well but you and go into it that way because i know uh, i'm uh, i participate in a few alchemical communities online and uh, the people who um, accept there's an inner alchemy even if they do even if they don't do practical lab work, they still uh, respect it, like, or they might do it soon, or they have tried it, or like that. But the people who are only doing lab work, there's some of them completely reject the inner work and say that there's lab work is the only thing that's alchemy. And I guess that's because they entered alchemy from the lab work perspective. So they're lacking the inner. Well, persons who, who, who come at it from that tact. They want to make gold. <laughs> well, I, I have no, you know, judgment about a desire to make gold. I mean, you know, I know a lot of guys that say, oh, you, you, you shouldn't. You know, I mean, it's, it's just mind-boggling the, the contortions people are putting themselves through to live under this odious system of, of imposed morality. Oh, um, as an alchemist, you know, you, 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 you make the stone, but you're not supposed to make gold to aggrandize yourself. But guess what? You, you can build hospitals and, and education and thing, but you and your family have to live in poverty. What? Huh? <laughs> I can help heal the world and educate it, but my own life has to be a banal? Are, are you insane? 
That that just makes no sense. And again, this is the story of the blind man and the elephant. Uh, the energy is there. It's just the perceptions about what you're supposed to do with that energy are just completely contorted and and, and misrepresented and, and misperceived. All right, so a person who comes at who says, okay, I'm just going to do the, the, the spiritual work, but, you know, I, I, I respect the, um, the physical. Okay, you know, fine. But a guy who, who would say that there's no such thing as spiritual alchemy is blind to what's right in front of him. I mean, every, just look around the room or, or wherever you, you know, if you're listening to it on your phone or whatever and you're driving or Look around. Everything that you see, everything that was not put here by nature began as a thought in someone's mind. Think about that for a moment. Everything you see that was not put here by nature began as a thought in someone's mind. And so how can you say thought does not emanate into physical reality? When people were first creating instruments to measure energy waves that we cannot apprehend with our physical eye, they first touched upon that reality in their mind. And something inside of them said, this thing exists. And what did they do? They went about building instruments to prove or disprove the existence of said energy and calibrated it so that they could touch it. Again, it's that spiral, that two-way street I spoke about originally. They had the idea, they built the machine, it had a certain level of success. They went back interiorly and said, well, maybe if I change this. And so it's a back and forth until finally they could reliably measure whatever it is that they were seeking to measure. Yes. Same thing Same thing about when you're building a chair. The artist sees the chair in their mind. They don't just haphazardly start slapping stuff together. They see the completed object. You know, uh, I think it was Leonardo or Michelangelo, one of, you know, they both probably said it the same way, same thing in different ways. But, you know, when you're, you're, you're doing a sculpture, you simply chip away everything that is not that which you have already seen. Right. I, I, disagree, I disagree with guys that say that there's no such thing as spiritual alchemy. And I think guys that only practice spiritual alchemy are doing themselves a disservice because the great thing about alchemy is that it allows us to prove physically that which we have seen interiorly in spirit. And basically for a thing to be a law in alchemy, it has to operate in all kingdoms. It, it, it has to show itself provably in a plant, animal, and mineral kingdom. Now, I was just thinking about the example of the instrument. It's also amazing that the person who invented the piano 
he could never perceive what many probably hundreds of years later what like Beethoven or Mo- Mozart would create on it you know mm. yeah yeah and and the ancient Greeks used to call these things that gave us inspiration a muse a spirit that you know or God you know Mercury is going to teach you commerce and so the guy gives you fire and you know all these these different things but we always tend to think of these things as being external from us and they're not it's interior conversation that brings about these things and it it is only by moving inward and developing the ability to speak that language and 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 most of it by the way is not spoken word although there are conversations that happen like that a lot of it is symbology speaking in pictures and yet you can prove or disprove what it is that you have experienced interiorly by doing the lab work it's it's just that easy and so alchemy is a dual science it is composed of the inner and outer and to focus on one or the other is to the detriment of the practitioner at least that's how i see it something that's always well at first it was annoying now it's more funny to me but it's this thing that it always seems that society and the people who live in society they always seem to perceive society that society has finished and it's all usually the politics and all that is just about you know uh, fine-tuning some things here and there but they always see it as like finished they never see it you know like as we said before we've just built the piano we haven't really used it yet you know yeah yeah um everything as, as far as the alchemist is concerned is alive and evolving Uh, If you look at the metals, the alchemical perception is that the metals are evolving towards gold. So you could look at lead or antimony as very unripe fruit. And generally speaking, you're you're not going to eat unripe fruit because it's going to give you a tummy ache or worse. You know, you don't want to go through that. But unripe fruit or parts of unripe fruit might have something usable about them. Again, in the case of lead, uh, there's medicines that can be made, and, and, and that's because, again, at the center of everything lies goodness. And so when you know what to do, you can speed up the evolution of a thing. And so to us, it looks like transmutation, but it's simply taking it from an unripe state or a seed state and bringing it through its entire gestational process until you have something that is um, usable. The most famous thing is, you know, turning lead into gold. But would you agree then with the concept that 
actually lead is already gold so it's not about making lead into gold it's just seeing the gold well yeah i mean in kabbalah they say um kether is in malkuth and malkuth is in kether um the 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 oak tree is already in the acorn it's just a different form and indeed you know you look at the acorn you would never imagine unless you know if it weren't for the fact that plants have a relatively short life cycle and we can see what happens when you you put a seed or an acorn into the ground and what starts to come up plants would be just as much a mystery as 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 the minerals and metals you know we we'd be having arguments about those but yes that's exactly what it is the lead is already gold and 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 the alchemists basically tell you that and and what you're seeking to do is take out get that seed again and this is what the philosophical mercury is all about you know you you can perform spagyrics and use acids and do all kinds of things and you know make interesting products and even medicines but the philosophical mercury is the only thing that is going to preserve the sperm and the egg you know i mean you want to get a sperm or an egg from a woman um you know there's certain procedures uh and an environment into which you have to put that egg and if you use the wrong um, things to store that egg you're going to sterilize that egg now the egg might still be there in form but it's completely incapable of being um, fertilized or you know bringing about uh cell division and 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 you know the gestation of a baby so alchemy is no different and in our case we need the philosophical mercury to do it that's that is the thing that you know one student had asked me well you know i thought spagyrics and alchemy were different on the fact that alchemy worked with you know life and my response is that everything is alive even when you die your body goes through a decomposition and if you were dead dead or your body were dead then it wouldn't be able to change change can only happen to that which is alive has movement so even as iron rust it's alive the question is not whether or not you're working with life you always are the question is is that life sterile if it's sterile you can't hope to procreate it's amazing the potential that is carried inside of a seed and it is through art that we pick up where nature leaves off and a lot of people think when they hear that oh you know okay it's it's i harvest a plant and um you know after it's matured and a spagyricist would think that way an alchemist would not when i was growing up and this is in the 60s <laughs> you know when they depicted a life cycle it was a circle it wasn't you know all these funny 
shapes they have now, triangles and squares and whatever the bloody hell else they're using. It was a circle. And a circle has certain meaning esoterically. One of which is that it has no beginning or end. And so when they say, the alchemists say, our work begins where nature's ended, what are they actually talking about? Well, if I want to make an, a, an ethanol from a product, from a, an herb, Most herbs don't have enough starch or, you know, um, carbohydrate starch or sugar in order to make a good quantity of alcohol, like, say, a grape would. But if I were to pick that plant when it's just, you know, it's, its shoots are young, that's when it has the most amount of sugar and carbohydrates because that's what the plant needs in order to grow. And so if I gather those things at that time, that's where nature's work has ended. It has provided me something that I can now use to go ahead and make an alcohol. As to essential oil, and, you know, again, I'm talking about outer spagyrics. This isn't... Um, the real detailed stuff that I, I, I normally do or teach. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to try and steam distill, distill a plant to get its essential oil, excuse me, when it's, you know, a young shoot or when it's dead and lying fallow in the ground. I'm going to do it when it's flowered and its oil is most abundant. And of course, when I want to calcine it, I'm not going to take it as a shoot or, you know, when it's, it's, it's flowered, I'm going to wait until it's dead. As a matter of fact, I'm going to let it compost. Now, a lot of guys will say, oh my God, you can't do that because, you know, the stuff that you want to capture is being released when it dies, and but that's what nature does. Okay, nature is our guide. And so when you, you compost a thing, it's it's very interesting. You actually get a different salt. The, 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 the crystalline formation of the salt is different than if you took a plant, say rosemary, as you you know, you get it from mountain rose herb or you know, wherever. And you just took that stuff you got from Mountain Rose Herb, and even if you did the entire spagyric process on it, and then you and dried it, incinerated it, and calcined it, and leached the, the salts from it, you would get a different salt than if you had done that entire process and then took the herb body and composted it. And when you compost a thing, it moves it very much closer to a mineral. And indeed, if you take really good compost and you've dried it and ground it up, and you put it next to dirt topsoil, you can't tell the difference. And yet, 
the salts that come from the compost are very different. Indeed, when you calcine the compost, the compost is going to look more like dirt, even though it's an ash. It, it, it literally looks like dirt. Each, each one of these things are different parts uh, on that circle, that, that depiction of the life cycle. Um, this is what I mean by the interior speaking to you um, through symbol, because most people, most alchemists, most pajaristas would say, I, I never thought of it that way. But that's exactly what it's saying. If, if you know, it, I forget the name of the bloody book, but it was some book and it, it talked about the esoteric thing of shapes. And that was one of the books I read 30 years ago. I still have it buried here somewhere. Um, wouldn't know where to begin to look for it, but I'm sure I still have it. Um, but it's very important that you understand the hermetic meaning of shapes and, and, and what the esoteric meaning behind those various shapes because that's how you start to understand this um, these these source text and and also even the stuff that you know Albertus and Junius wrote you 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 need to look at it and see what chapters what chapter headings when he's talking about different things um, it's like two different books man literally two different books let's pretend it's uh, legal but wouldn't it be amazing if you have a loved one i don't know if it's possible but if you have a loved one that dies if you were allowed to um, calcinate the body and do the whole process with the loved one what, what do you think about that uh, i have often thought that i would like to have my students make a stone out of my corpse so <laughs> and i'm quite sure uh, a few others have have thought about that too um you know some people have themselves um, uh, cremated and then their ashes um, turned into diamonds it's no different so if people want to find out more about your work or connect with you or be a student what can they do all right i um have really cut back on teaching um because i am back into programming and and that's uh, the teaching just took so much time that i was not able to really do the research that i wanted um so if people actually but i still do teach i teach through the hermetic order that I belong to. So if anyone's interested in taking a class, um, a group class, then you should go to innergarden.org or write to info at innergarden.org. Um, the classes are free. Um, there is a, I think a hundred dollar fee for joining the order. Um, You know, we have inner alchemy classes. Um, 
it's uh, the classes that I teach start every spring. Um, that goes along with tradition. Uh, I am thinking about doing a practical class, a laboratory class, in which you would get the inner work and the outer work together. Uh, that is also th free uh, if we get enough folk that are interested in it in the order. You um, just in your initial email um, would say something. And again, Inner Garden is run by a, a group of, of uh, alchemists. Um, it is not mine per se. Um, but you can say, hey, I you know heard John speak about this on the podcast. Uh, I'm interested. For those that are wanting to do something privately, uh, I'm willing to do that, but my time is precious, so uh, those courses cost money. Um, and it's not inexpensive. Um, you can write me privately at redlion at redlionlabs.com or spajaria at spajaria.com, S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-A at S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-A dot com. And, you know, inquire about uh, private tuition. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, uh, a lot of my time is spent within a garden. Um, and that's the route that most people are probably wanna gonna, are going to want to go because private sessions are just they're expensive. If you know, um, I've I've got something that I offer for free for those who who don't want to pay. But if you say, "Hey, I want my time, your time, and I want it privately," then that's what it costs. And what about your books? Um, you can go to spajaria.com and um, in the library section. And I will send you um, uh, links to it. Um, you can read the uh, minor opus. Um, or um, you can also read about air, uh, alchemical inner reconciliation, and all my other articles. And you can also get, and, and this is something that I highly suggest for people to do, um, the Alchemical Laboratory Bulletins, you can download them. These were created by Frater Albertus, his uh, Paracelsus Research uh, Society at the time, back in the 60s in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, I believe it was. And uh, those are very interesting things. There's also a practice called Vigil of Nature. Um, and I'll send a link to that also. Um it's something, it's a 12-year type of deal. Uh, I touch upon it in the minor opus. And it, it really is about going out into nature. Um, and this was how I first was initiated into alchemy. Albert was dead. As far as I knew, there were no teachers. And so all I could do was follow what he had suggested to do in his various writings. And one of the things that was was to go out and spend time in nature. Um, 
And the idea in that is to be with yourself and give your feelings free reign and not judge them. Besides just looking at nature at the different seasons. So, you know, if one day you're hung, you're, you're angry, just you're, you're angry and you don't judge it. You don't quantify it. You just experience it. Another day, if you have a lot of lust and you know, you're horny and you just allow yourself to be. Now, there are certain emotions, obviously, we don't want you acting on. Your boss has made you mad, and so you should not be going out pummeling the poor guy or woman. But in this space, everything is allowed to be felt and experienced. And it's very important. Along that, I would say, read at least one of the alchemical bulletins once a week as you're doing this practice. And you will be amazed, everyone who has done it, has found that it has helped them immensely when they have moved into the practical work. A lot of people poo-poo that, but this was something that when a person contacted Albert and said, hey, I want to take your alchemy course. He said, okay, fine. Um, you can come next year. In the intervening year, you know, as, as you're waiting, do this vigil of nature. Some people did it. Most of them didn't. But those that did received a great gift from the interaction, the idea, because we are so cut off from nature. Our, you know, I mean, for God's sakes, we're, we're, we're told that a lot of our feelings are wrong. You know, growing up in a Christian household, just, you know, sex, yeah. God doesn't want you to do that, you know, and you just have all this compiled guilt and crap going through your mind to the fact that natural feelings were somehow considered sin. And, and, and that's a trap you don't want to find yourself in. That, that Man, you own a person. If you can get them to believe that and that you're the only way to overcome that or... or receive absolution for it. It's like having a ring through a bull's nose. I can lead you wherever I want. So getting in touch with your feelings and what's going on and experience them without any judgment and all the other things that happen while you're reading that bullet in a week and observing the changes of the seasons, it is extremely powerful. Great. Thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast again. Thank you so much for having me again. You, uh, anytime. <laughs> Just give a holler, man. Go to spageria.com or redlionlabs.com to check out more of John Reed III's work. Also, as he said, go to innergarden.org. I'll post all the links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. In this episode, we talked a bit about those people that are only into spiritual or inner alchemy. And we also talked about those that are only into outer or, as it's also called, practical alchemy. In an episode I did with alchemist Rubafilos, uh, we touched on the same topic. And I now want to play his thoughts on the matter. So I've been uh, debating on this topic on on the internet and you know in alchemy you have what you call 
inner or spiritual alchemy. And then you have like laboratory, practical, outer alchemy, whatever you want to call it. And there's, from my perspective, what I've noticed, there's like three different opinions on this. One opinion is that the only real alchemy is the practical alchemy and anything else is just some new age hippie mumbo jumbo. Then there's the people who say the opposite where there's spiritual alchemy is the only way and laboratory alchemy, it's some sort of pseudo chemistry and it's all a metaphor. And then you have the third option, which is that it's like a bit of both. What's your position on, on this well, first of all, the whole concept that uh, the lab process is not real or accurate or people are misunderstanding it and it's really all uh, internal or spiritual is a very modern concept, really, that only developed since Carl Jung um, studied alchemical texts, classic alchemical texts, and a lot of his uh, psychoanalysis revolved around what he um, figured out about alchemy himself. Um, people looked at that and thought, oh yeah, so Jung had it all worked out and it's all actually just psychology. There's no, the lab work side of it is not accurate and uh, people who read those texts in that kind of way are being misled. And uh, the uh, extreme end of the, that view is that the chemical language in old alchemical texts was basically just a cipher language for something which was really psychology. Uh, that definitely is not true. Anybody who um, uh, believes that approach to alchemy, that the lab is misleading and that it's only internal, has no idea about the lab tradition. Because if they had any idea at all, they would understand that the lab tradition is completely accurate. Uh, back in the old days, uh, previous to um, the dawn of the scientific age, when lab alchemists were still working their um, original um, system, that some of them did both, and they were largely only initiates and uh, people who had uh, studied the whole system uh, that esoterically. And they studied Kabbalah, and the internal side of lab alchemy was based on what they understood about the alchemical aspect of the Hebrew Kabbalah, and they worked lab work. People who believe that only lab work is the true tradition and the internal tradition is not at all accurate and it's New Age rubbish or whatever, you'll find in 99% of cases with people like that, they have no background in esoteric study at all. They've never been a member of any kind of esoteric fraternity. They know nothing at all really about the esoteric tradition. They know nothing about Kabbalah. They've never been initiated um, in, in an esoteric group before. And largely their approach to alchemy is a chemical approach. Um, they usually see uh, classic alchemy as being is being like a more primitive version of chemistry, which is not true at all. Anybody who tries to approach lab alchemy from that angle won't get anywhere. And that's been proven time and time again uh, in our age because there are a lot of very intelligent and very um, 
well-educated chemists and physicists who have studied traditional lab alchemy and have virtually succeeded in nothing where the subject is concerned, which proves that uh, trying to solve um, the problems of alchemy from a chemical point of view, it simply doesn't work. The alchemists had a whole different view of chemistry, of the nature of reality and of the nature of uh, physical matter. And although it's not in conflict with um, chemistry, it's very different. So in my experience, people who believe that the internal work is um, an illusion and that only lab work is the accurate approach to the tradition, these people usually have a very chemical view of lab alchemy. And I would say today that at least 50% of people who have a serious interest in uh, lab alchemy, even a lot of people who don't think that they are like have a very modern chemical view of alchemy, uh, usually do have a very modern chemical view of alchemy. And it's it's not accurate. It simply isn't accurate. I've talked to a lot of people like that, and they have a, a lot of even very basic misunderstandings about what alchemy is and how to approach it and how to solve problems where alchemy is concerned. There's another important um, aspect of this, and this is the like the third group, the people who say that it's a bit of each, that one of the important things about um, lab alchemy is that it was deliberately designed to prove esoteric concepts like spiritual concepts about the nature of the mind and the nature of uh, spiritual growth and development. Uh, it's the only aspect of hermetism which has a completely physical side to it that's designed to actually prove the claims that are made about the spiritual side of the tradition. Uh, that that situation wouldn't have arisen in the first place if um, there wasn't a spiritual aspect to lab alchemy. Uh, most people are aware of the idea that um, attaining the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life are designed to be proofs by alchemy that the lower nature of man can be regenerated and uh, evolved into a higher divine state. That's one of the most basic concepts of alchemy. Anybody who practices lab alchemy thinking that only lab alchemy is accurate and uh, is seeking the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life and thinks that the only thing those two substances have to offer is the production of gold and gems and the uh, extension of longevity simply has no understanding of alchemy. Uh, you'd be better off trying to solve those problems simply through chemical means than approaching it through alchemical means. Uh, also, anybody who has ingested very powerful alchemical preparations, high-end alchemical preparations, will tell you that the first concern that they have about those substances is that they have a very powerful effect on the mind and on your spiritual view of the nature of reality. You can't get away from it. So uh, people who are stuck in this concept that only the chemical side has value, 
those kind of people have never produced anything powerful from alchemy and ingested it. Because if they had of, they wouldn't hold to that point of view that chemistry is the only view. Uh, And it it works the same with people who believe that um, alchemy is only a spiritual or psychological discipline. Those kind of people have never been in a situation where they've ingested something that's been produced from the lab tradition that uh, affects their psychological and spiritual state. Because if they had, they would realize that the lab tradition is part of the spiritual tradition and that the two of them together are um, codependent and uh, co-productive. One of the uh, most basic concepts of lab alchemy is that we live in a binary uh, reality here. Everybody is aware of the binary nature of this reality, even at its most basic level, that we have males and females and up and down and left and right and back and forward and day and night and love and hate. Everything here revolves around a binary um, condition. And within a human being, we have the outer world and the inner world. Everybody knows that they have an inner world. They can't escape that, and everybody knows there is an outer world. And alchemy was designed specifically to teach what each of those two levels of the binary are about and to teach that they basically are the same reality divided into two different conditions. So anybody who thinks only one or other of those branches of alchemy is real doesn't understand alchemy. It's it's that simple. And these are like very fundamental concepts of Hermetism, very fundamental concepts. So how come this gold chasing started? I mean, um, is it that they misunderstood what the concept of creating gold meant? Or is it that the gold you create is to be used for something else? I don't know. How did, how did they get in, How did alchemy become so connected with making gold? Well, the, amongst people who are have an esoteric interest in alchemy, there's a predisposition towards seeing alchemy as being entirely esoteric. That alchemists of the past were like they studied the occult and Kabbalah and magic and mysticism as well as the lab work and all that. But that's actually not true. Only a very small amount of alchemists from past times looked at the whole subject in that way. The bulk of people were actually only interested in making gold and making um, gems and things like that, and probably seeking the elixir as well. So historically, if we look back, for example, in Europe, um, even as far back um, in the Middle East and Rome as uh, about 280 years after the beginning of the Christian era to to the early um, 300 AD, even as far back as then, and then later um, through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, one of the things that has always accompanied the study of alchemy was an industrial interest in the subject. Because the more that alchemists learned about the nature of physics and chemistry, the more that that learning interested people who were capitalists, basically, especially the aristocracy um, and the ruling uh, 
um, classes. They wanted alchemy to be bent toward producing gold, first of all, because of money, obviously. And they also knew that alchemists understood a lot about metallurgy. And, uh, of course, that was a big interest because of um, for industrial purposes and for war and things like that. Anything that they could learn about chemistry and physics was um, commercially and um, capital capitalistically uh, important. So, for example, in northern Europe, for a, a long period of time during the Middle Ages and up into the Renaissance, the ruling classes uh, maintained an industry in alchemy where the people who practiced alchemy and worked for them in special sections of the city um, that were like enclaves for alchemists, those guys were paid to discover the uh, secrets of alchemy largely for industrial purposes. And a lot of people who uh, consider themselves to be students of the subject of alchemy know nothing about that aspect of um, the alchemical tradition, or they've heard of it and they just simply don't care about it. And so they live in a, a, a bit of a delusion about the real nature of alchemy historically. And that is that most people in the last 2,000 years who have been interested in alchemy have no interest in the esoteric or spiritual side of alchemy. All they were interested in was the industrial side, glass making, metallurgy, um, the medicine, medicinal side of alchemy, and of course, gold, silver, and um, the elixir of life. So that's why there is still today a very strong tradition of people who approach the subject almost exclusively from a chemical point of view. And they see it as being, you know, all they are interested in is discovering whether or not gold can be produced. And then it's not hard to figure that if they actually solved that problem and pr produced a transmutation agent and made gold, what's the next logical conclusion for a person, person like that? It's just money and wealth. That's all. They're not interested in the esoteric side of things. Unless, of course, they also manage to produce the elixir properly and start ingesting that and then they're going to find themselves getting a fright and learning that there's actually more to the subject than they had allowed themselves to believe. Personally, I think we can put that debate to rest now. Perhaps no one listening to this podcast cares one bit about it, but uh, it is actually more important than you think, in my opinion, and that is why I keep bringing it up. I guess if you know, you know. Uh, now we are going to listen to a musical act called Winter Atlas. The track is called Constellations, featuring Stormy J, and is taken from the Celestial EP. Go to winter-atlas.bandcamp.com if you like what you hear and want to hear more. And as I said before, all the links will be in the program notes. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And if you don't have anything to do, if you feel bored uh, and want to support the podcast in a way that doesn't require you to spend any money, then why don't you write a nice review on iTunes? 
Next week, we will be looking into morphic resonance. See you in a week. Freedom is in the mind. Thank you.